Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Anku. And I'm your co-host, Angel. And this is our 30th episode. For this episode, we were going to talk about medicine of dandelion, but due to recent events, we both felt compelled to talk about the intersections of reproductive rights and witchcraft after we update y'all a bit about the going-ons of your two hosts. Before we get to that, let's briefly talk about our Patreon. Patreon is the main way we support the podcast, and we've been working hard to include extra bonus material, including many episodes of audio love letters to flowers, art stickers of deities made by us or other artists we invite to take part in our art coven, and a quarterly subscription box from my company, Goat and Thistle. If you would like to support the podcast, check out one of our several tiers available. We've already had two new people join the Science Witch Coven level. Thank you all very much. And we have new stickers from both Tefna and Wajet, the cobra-headed goddess of protection, by Kalika, available to send out now. Also, Angel is working on a new Who's in Bloom episode on rhododendron and pink fairy slippers, orchids. And I started working on one on Honeysuckle and then got totally seduced by Daylily. So... They're fighting for my attention at the moment. Your support of the podcast helps offset costs of hosting and helps support the artists who take part in the Art Coven project. And it means a lot to know that y'all are out there supporting our work. So check out our Patreon if you're interested. Link in the show notes. We also have other ways to support the podcast, including our Kofi, if you want to leave us a tip, our Red Bubble, if you want Science Witch Podcast merch. Our Etsy, if you want to get one of the stickers that we've put out so far, or you can leave us a rating and review on the platform that you listen to us on. And if you leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts, we'll be sure to read it on air and send you a sticker of your choice. So let's talk about what's going, been going on behind the scenes a bit with us and the podcast before we delve into the main topic for today, which is reproductive rights. During the month of April, Angel and their spouse traveled back down to the southeast and got to visit me and my farmstead and my herbal business. Yes, it was incredible. I had a life-changing experience visiting Aww. down home with my spouse who had not gotten to come back in over 10 years. And while we were there, we got to go to my brother's thrice postponed reception because uh, of COVID. Yeah. My brother was supposed to get married on April 5th, 2020. So as you can mm. imagine, him and his spouse have had a lot of interesting negotiations to have to do with a wedding over the time of COVID. And then I also got to spend some time in New Orleans with my spouse. And this time I actually got to be a tourist, which was super fun because nice. while I lived there, I didn't get to do any of the touristy things. So we went on a cemetery and city tour as well as a ghost tour of how many ghost tours did you do did just you one do just one oh, ghost tour multiple. just oh, okay. one just ghost one. tour but just it was a very ghost good tour. ghost tour by a tour guide that i will put his name in the show notes but i really liked how he centered the history of enslaved people as much as he did a lot of the people that have been documented in history it felt more authentic to the story of the city than mm -hmm. just like what you would hear in history books. And New yeah. Orleans, of course, is such an amazing place in general. I, I know we've, we've talked about how fortunate both of us 
feel that we got to grow up with that as our culture. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm so glad y'all got to go back. Yeah, and in addition to that, we also went to the Voodoo Spiritual Temple and actually got to meet Priestess Miriam, who is the, the head priestess and mambo of the, the spiritual temple. And she actually talked to us. And then we got to go pray, if, me and my spouse, because my spouse, as I mentioned before, his family is from New Orleans. In fact, we actually looked up the crypts that his family is in on his mom's Ooh. side in which cemetery in the city. Because for those that don't know, in New Orleans, all of the graves have to be elevated into crypts because the water table is so low, so you can't bury your dead. Anyway, his family actually have crypts in one of the cemeteries. I think it's St. Rock Cemetery Mm -hmm. number two. And we didn't get to see them this time, but we plan on seeing them next time. But my spouse has been raised in sort of this hoodoo, New Orleans voodoo, Catholicism. Catholic magic. Yes, yes. The syncretist, beautiful gumbo that is spirituality from people who are from New Orleans. So we went to the spiritual temple to pray and getting to meet Priestess Miriam was an incredible experience. And then we went to the Voodoo Museum and we also got to see all these important artifacts of the history of voodoo in New Orleans. That was also really cool. And so then after New Orleans, I had experience of going to my 20th high school reunion, which I guess I'm outing myself as as how old I am, (laughs) but it's located in a historical town in Mississippi. I went to an interesting date-sponsored boarding school for the mathematically and scientifically gifted in Mississippi. I won't say the name, but I'm sure you can look it up. There's only one. So. <laughs> There's only one. So um, it is Mississippi. Come on. It was really interesting getting to reconnect with all of my classmates. The thing I wanted to bring up about this was one of our high school projects was this research project where we went into a cemetery and we looked at the grave records of the people who had died and we basically craft a story or a narrative that we would then deliver in a graveyard to an audience of people. It's called Tales from the Crypt. 20 years ago, I was one of the performers. I actually ended up being one of the ladies that put flowers on the graves of both Union and Confederate Mm. soldiers, which started Memorial Day. When I came back to see this performance 20 years later, there were a lot of really talented students that did the stories of enslaved people, which Mm. was incredible. One of them was this kid who did a performance of a enslaved person who was a teenager that was alive to see the civil war be fought and slavery considered to be outlawed in the United States, legally, but then abolished. legally abolished. However, a lot of enslaved people, they didn't really have much of a choice. So basically he became an apprentice, which mm. essentially continued the legacy of slavery. But this, this kid, when he performed, it was like he was channeling this ancestor as much as he was like doing this performance for a class and it was so moving and it was so incredible and it just gave me this 
enriched perspective of how fortunate for one I was to be able to be a part of that, but also just to see how this legacy has continued in a really incredible way. And so I'll, I'll put links in the show notes for anybody who's interested. They've started doing this project in other parts of the country where they get oh, high school cool. students to do this. And so I just wanted to center that and highlight that as something really incredible that I got to experience while I was visiting. Yeah, it just, it really strikes me how many spirits I think need to be channeled yes. in the deep south. Like, mm-hmm. I imagine that was a really, a really powerful experience. And there's that obsession with history in the South and also massive historic amnesia mm-hmm. at the same time. It's like for, you know, among certain groups of people, certain groups of white people specifically, yeah. is we love our heritage, but we don't want to talk about what that heritage was right. at all. And yeah, I think the ancestors want to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Especially the black and brown ancestors of that land that have been erased for so long. It was really empowering and inspiring to be back and see how much the narrative has shifted away from one that just centers white supremacy and is more inclusive towards the history of enslaved peoples, specifically in the South. Like one of the things I noticed as I'm doing this huge road trip across the South in order to visit you as well as one of our favorite podcasters, which we'll we'll talk about in a minute, but we stopped at the ruins of the Alabama state Capitol. And this was the Alabama state Capitol prior to the civil war. And now it's just ruins. And the plaques about that place, they really centered the enslaved people that built it and also were victims of the the transatlantic slave trade. And I really appreciated that perspective on the history as opposed to what it would have been before, which was like, oh, this was all these white slave owner men who, you know, quote unquote, built this. Oh my gosh. You know, it would be like going to a museum in a gulag or in a death camp and being, Mm -hmm. and only talking about like what the generals who staffed it, like what their lives were like, and not even talking about what it was there for, Right. you know, and the experience of the vast, you know, majority of people that went through those those horrific systems but we don't do that for some reason that's I mean is that a unique thing to the south in that like civil or antebellum tourism like yeah the I can't imagine that happening in a lot of other places what do they call it the great lost cause oh yeah the so it's like the mythology of the lost cause which seeks to downplay how bad slavery was and sort of portray it as a benevolent institution that whole viewpoint there was written into all of the textbooks across the South for generations. Like the Daughters of the Confederacy, they were wealthy white women who volunteered their time to write textbooks and ban textbooks and make sure that public education in the South taught white and Black children and children from other communities that slavery was a good thing. It's just, yeah. It's intense. It is intense. It is very intense as a white person, really actively dismantling a lot of these internalized ideas that were imposed on us from school. 
And that was one of the great things about at my high school reunion is that I got to really connect with a lot of my black classmates. And we talked a lot about how we all collectively want to resist white supremacy in the South and in Mississippi. And I don't really want to go too much into details for personal reasons. Mm -hmm. And also because I, I don't want to speak on the behalf of my classmates, but there's a lot of exciting things happening in Mississippi, which I hope will help to counter some of the really terrible things that are happening in Mississippi right now. But before we get to all that, let's finish talking about our trip and how we got to visit one of our favorite podcasters. Oh my gosh. At her farmstead, uh, which was super fun. At her fairy paradise farmstead. Yes. It was a very magical place. It was. It was. We got to visit Seba, the Southern Fried Witch, and meet her partner, Taryn, and have a fire and drink wine and eat cheese. Mm. It was so lovely. We had such a great time. And it was exciting to connect with another podcaster in our greater podcaster network. It's just really exciting to meet somebody that I've been listening to, I feel like at this point, you know, you and I've been interviewed by her Mm -hmm. and then getting to meet her in person and getting to see the farm that we hear about was really fun. Yeah. And she's just even more amazing in person, just far and away. No question. Yeah. The moment that the feeling that you were just talking about, I think the closest I came was the moment that she introduced me to some other people through my podcasting and I was like oh these are people who listen like people listen who I don't know and like prod and say hey you want to listen to my podcast like other people listen to this that's there was like a, a light bulb went off yeah you feel like that kid in the the new Ghostbusters movie his name is podcast and it's like you're my listener <laughs> I did not see the new Ghostbusters movie but it sounds cute you got to see it just for that character <laughs> Oh, well, I'll, t- I'll check it podcast. out. I'll see if I can find a YouTube compilation of that character <laughs> being cute. But yeah, that was that was awesome. And she sent me home with plants. So just dried mushrooms that I made a very delicious stir fry with that were incredible. Mm. Yeah, we're saving our lion's mane. We're going to eat it the night before we go off on vacation. That's exciting. A special meal planned with the, the lion's mane. So the other big part of the trip I wanted to touch on was that we got to hang out in person on your homestead, which is the headquarters of Goat and Thistle. And I know we've mentioned Goat and Thistle on the podcast, but I thought maybe for the listeners sake, you could kind of just talk a little bit about what Goat and Thistle is, why you started it and what your intentions are for it. Oh, great question. Yeah. So first off, we don't have goats or goat milk to everyone's disappointment, including mine every time I have to say it. But that's like the perennial question, right? Because we're called goat and thistle. I would love to have goats one day. I want that to happen. But the reason that it's goat and thistle is more about the values and the ethos of what we're trying to do, which is use what the land provides for us and be connected to the land in in a mutually respectful and beneficial way. Yeah, goats eat a lot of stuff, including thistle. And we do have quite a lot of thistle on the land that I'd like to 
learn to use. Thistle was my first wild food that I ever learned to forage in the Cub Scouts. So it has a special place in my heart there. And yeah, it's, have you seen the site Eat the Weeds? Which yes. we should definitely put in, in the show notes. It's sure. lovely. I feel like I have a similar sort of vision as what that website does with information, but like with making things and providing them. I learned herbalism in the Northeast. And so I've been adapting down here trying and spending the last several years getting to know the, the green queendom that is around us down here. And yeah, we have sort of a baseline of teas and I see the next step of it really being focused in teas that, or tisane blends that at least center some sort of wild foraged, wild foraged product. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a journey of trying to be in relationship with the land and figure out how to share that with other people because it's in every single way, a huge privilege to be able to have the the time and physical presence of this land around me. And I want to be a good steward of it and be be in relationship with it. And the space that you have for Goat and Thistle is beautiful, by the way. Maybe well, we'll thank you. get people pictures of it for Patreon. And we do have okay. a, yeah, a state inspected and licensed commercial kitchen and an LLC, and we try to make things pretty. And our Patreon subscribers at the Science Witch Coven level actually do receive a quarterly subscription tea box from this company that you have started. And so it's sort of a eclectic mix of various different tea projects that you undertake during any different point of the year. Which I haven't really been able to do because, you know, the job that pays the bills is intense but it's much less intense over the summer so that's that's the plan for the summer is to get things in order with goat and thistle and yeah I'm seeing sort of goat and thistle 2.0 a little bit this summer that's exciting and we'll put in the show notes where you can see the website so in case you're interested in buying any herbal products from goat and thistle we would appreciate it, help support Inku and the podcast, as well as be able to access some incredibly interesting herbal products that yeah, have magical yeah. intention. All organic or locally foraged and therefore organic products, which, yeah, hopefully have a little bit of extra, extra love and compassion in the mix. Yes, I've loved everything that you've sent me. Oh, thank you including the mugwort tincture, which I definitely mm. love using. We talked a little bit about that on the episode about dreams. You know, and- we're not selling the tinctures because of regulations, but we should think that they could be included in a subscription box. Oh. But I think the regulation is different because people aren't buying the product. So yeah, maybe we'll have to include some tinctures and the some tinctures and alcohol extracts. In, in the subscription box sometime. Well, that'd be great. Yeah, because I like making them, but then they sit and then they evaporate and then. Or you they send are no them to more. me. Or I send them to you, or I send them out to people. Yeah, I've made and shipped a lot of stuff, and some of it I've charged for. 
for the past three years. So that's, that's where that is. I like making things. Well, let's go ahead and transition into the topic we were going to talk about today, which is, of course, by now we all have learned about the leaked draft of the decision of Justice Alito that effectively repeals Roe versus Wade, which was the landmark 1973 decision that protected the right to an abortion. You mean that settled case law that we heard about over right. and over? That every was time. absolutely settled law. That was totally settled. That it all of those just... Supreme Court justices perjured themselves about in front of Congress. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. same one. When, of course, when the news came out about this, it was like a lot of times where I was both infuriated, but then not surprised. Right which has been sort of the standard response for a lot of things. I mean, as we yeah. all, I'm sure, have heard that this was something that the conservative religious right have been pushing for 50 years, right. really, since this was decided in the Supreme Court in 1973. Yeah. Actually, you know, it, the religious right opposition doesn't go back quite that far. Hmm. They didn't really care about abortion for quite some time. The Catholic Church cared a lot about abortion from the beginning, but I mean, they don't even like condoms or masturbation. So what you going to do? Right. Uh, also, glass houses a little bit, glass cathedrals. But yeah, the this like Southern Baptist Convention, that section or sect of the religious right didn't really care about abortion early on. It became an issue for them by some analyses as a way to pivot away from overt white supremacy. Looking back across like the Southern Baptist Convention statements on Mm -hmm. abortion. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention said that they would, quote, work for legislation that would allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity and careful ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. They were talking about allowing abortion and working for legislation that would allow abortion that took into account the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother, right? Like that's what they were saying in 1971. And by 2008, that shifted into that support for abortion or Planned Parenthood was the line in the sand and they would not support any politician who wavered at all in their like 100% opposition to reproductive rights. Right. So yeah, it, it's a convoluted history, but it's, mm-hmm. it's one that I think is interesting because it's become such a, a rallying call there that the one of the most right-wing denominations in the country back in 1971 was way more progressive. Yeah, well, we have been in the last at least six years, Mm -hmm. we saw with the Trump administration doing what they could to stack the court in favor of these conservative viewpoints. And now they have the conservative majority to overturn 49 years worth of reproductive rights in the country. And of course, on a state-by-state level, the religious right has been challenging abortion access mm-hmm. in different ways. And in fact, the case that's coming up in front of the Supreme Court is from 
a Mississippi court case, right. which makes it all the more poignant, I suspect, mm, yeah. in the fact that this is one of the forms of activism that I feel is just one of my most passionate causes. And it has been mm -hmm. my entire life. My mother, of course, was a feminist in the 1960s and she was very much pro-choice and would take me to rallies on this. And then, of course, in, in when we were both in university, we went and marched in Washington together right. to, um, in 2004 for the Women's Choice March. And I actually wasn't there. I was not at the Women's Choice March because I was in the UK studying right, abroad right. that year. You went to the, yeah. the anti-war march with Yes. We, yeah, we did we go to, to Washington, DC. But yes, yeah. you were you were in the UK I was in, during in the UK. Yeah. Right. So I I marched in Washington in 2004. And then when this news broke of the leaked draft. I just went and got this sign off the wall from 2004 and brought it to the impromptu march that we had in the capital where I live. And it was just something that infuriated me to the point where I just had to get out and march because the fact that here I am almost 20 years later marching for the exact same thing that I had been marching for since 2004, it just, mm. it made me angry. It made me yeah. really frustrated because, and even in 2004, we still had the Supreme Court upholding Roe versus Wade. And so now right. we're in a completely even more tenuous situation where very likely reproductive rights on a federal level can be completely erased and then right you know where does that lead from there i will say that one of the things i've been thinking about in terms of the difference between when i was marching in 2004 and when now that i'm marching here in 2022 is my language around reproductive rights has shifted more from this idea that it's quote women's rights mm -hmm. to more that centering the idea of reproductive rights because as I've come into my own non-binary identity I've started to recognize that women are not the only ones who get pregnant trans men right. non-binary people gender queer people these are all people who could be pregnant against their will and so mm -hmm. that's been something that I've really tried to be intentional about shifting my language away from this women's rights to be more inclusive to the people who might be seeking abortion access and care. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super important. I actually did a little talk today for the Unitarian Church that I touched on this topic and I think we'll be releasing that as a wild witches yes. at some point. But that's one of the one of the things that I also tried to make very clear. And so I was talking about the what I see as some overlap between reproductive justice and environmentalism sort of within the metaphorical framework of the idea of like the mother earth or the earth is our mother and the attacks on earth and the attacks on people who can give birth. Yeah, one of the things that I tried to make very clear was when I was talking about the mythology and the archetypical value of the conversation, I was using the term mother, but when I would focus on biology and human relationships, I just use the term parent. And I 
thought it was a helpful distinction to make. Yeah, the idea to expand this idea of reproductive rights is to make it more intersectional. And another thing about reproductive rights that's really important to understand is the disparity between the access among especially poor people of color Mm -hmm. versus the access to middle-class white women. Because the people who are most able to access abortion care are often white, middle-class, conservative Christian women. Mm, And that's something that in the times that I've gotten up and spoken at rallies is I bring up is because it just seems so hypocritical to me that a lot of times the very people who claim to be pro-life are the ones that have the most access to abortion care mm-hmm. when they deem that they need it. And right. that has been always something that really just galvanized me into action as someone who is white, is that mm-hmm. I have had the privilege to have much greater access to abortion than anyone that is from a marginalized group. And I feel that as somebody with this privilege, it's my duty and imperative to work towards dismantling these barriers for anyone seeking abortion access and care. And that's one of the reasons that this issue has been such a a keystone, a touchstone in my life. Mm. I did have an abortion when I was 21 years old and I was fortunate enough to have both the financial resources and an understanding and caring partner to support me during that time. And when I was having my abortion, I was an atheist, which I felt was very needed at that time because they, of course, in order to access abortion care in the South, I actually get my abortion in Texas. They make you listen to the fetal heartbeat. They make you really, do you want this? Are you sure you don't want to consider adoption? And at that point, I was very affirmed in the fact that, no, I did not want to be pregnant. No, I do not want to carry this pregnancy to term. And I had to be kind of a heartless atheist about the fact that I did not care that there was a fetal heartbeat, but I shouldn't have had to have basically disassociated myself from all of these Mm. feelings in order just to access that care. And that is something my adopted sibling talks about when they went to access abortion care in the only abortion clinic in Mississippi. And there's a BBC interview with my sibling, Amy, and a BBC Canada correspondent where they talk about their experience of trying to access abortion care. And they had already had two other children. However, at the time they found out they were pregnant, they were trying to escape their abusive ex-husband and they also needed to have an important life-saving surgery for their gallbladder that they would not have been able to have if they had carried the pregnancy to term. And so they had to go through enormous barriers in order to access 
uh, an abortion in Mississippi because they literally make you wait 24 hours after you first make contact in order to have this abortion. So it's very difficult, especially for people that may not have the financial resources or time and ability to spend this whole 48 hour period in order to access abortion. Right. So I will put that interview in the show notes for anybody that's interested, but even with Roe versus Wade still enshrined as a federal mandate, it has been increasingly difficult for people in especially these states with abortion restrictions to access care. In the gerrymandered states? Yes. I mean, all states are gerrymandered, but, you know, the South perfected it to disenfranchise people of color. Yes. I also uh, wanted to mention the only abortion clinic in Mississippi is an incredible place called the Pink Foundation. It's located in Jackson, Mississippi. And I want to encourage any of our listeners who want to help out to donate directly to the Pink Fund if they want to help. Prior to doing this podcast, I would have mentioned the Satanic Temple, but I have since been made aware of some allegations of lack of transparency of where the the Satanic Temple is allocating the funds. I did donate to them before I learned all of this. And now I am encouraging people to go ahead and directly donate to the clinics that are at the front lines of this. Yeah, yeah. I've I've also heard some or read some critiques of the Satanic Temple's legal strategy. And I do think a lot of people with very good intentions and very good hearts probably put a lot of effort into those, but they don't seem very successful. And, you know, I think part of it is to push the lie of religious freedom in this country. Right. That what they call religious freedom is Christian supremacy. And it's not even Christian supremacy. It's right wing colonial Jesus Christian supremacy. Right. Because the courts and the power structure, they don't actually care about protecting other religions, freedom or liberty. It is a sham. And I feel like the satanic temple intentionally shows that it's a sham and does a good job of that. But maybe a lot of people think that despite it being a lie, that their legal strategy will work. And it doesn't work precisely because the courts don't give a fuck about well, And the then also, or the rest I feel of us. the strategy is a lot more effective when it's like, challenging putting 10 commandments in front of Mm -hmm. the state capital but when it comes to a person being pregnant against their will and trying to enact their first amendment right to freedom of religion and the sacred abortion ritual that's part of the satanic temple that is a different sort of challenge to religious Mm. freedom in this country because it's also very time sensitive and the thing the critiques i've seen is that a lot of members that did try to invoke the sacred abortion ritual and then seek care were not able to Mm -hmm. as well as there's just some questionable things that the founder has or the head of the 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 satanic temple has said that Mm. i can put some links if, if folks are interested but if you do want to monetarily support abortion access in this country, 
the best way is to directly donate to places like the Pink Fund that are at the front lines providing abortion access to mm-hmm. people who are pregnant against their will in these states where it is highly restricted. Yeah, yeah. But then what do witches have to do with reproductive rights, Inku? What do witches have to do with any reproductive rights? Well, one of the things that witches have to do with reproductive rights is in some of the is in some of the history around right. reproductive rights. Like, you know, we were talking about the evolution of the religious right and how they have taken on abortion as or anti-abortion as their cause. But I think one thing that we often don't know or or overlook is that the first anti-abortion movement, in fact, the first content warning here, the first one to talk about like killing babies, like abortion in those terms, was not the religious right. It was actually the American Medical Association right. uh, in the 1860s, specifically to wrest control away from midwives right. and women who were in charge of their, their own health care and to say, no, only these wealthy white men who are inaccessible to most people and treat people from different communities like commodities, if that. They're the only ones that can practice legal medicine in this country. So yeah, I mean, going back to the beginning, even before it was like a religious thing, even when it was just like highly medicalized, it was a direct attack attack on women and birthing people and people assigned female at birth. But the power of midwives specifically, who are often demonized as witches, like you said, that was being attacked. Yeah. And they, I mean, they solidified that even more in 1910 with the Flexner report that closed down any medical schools. So from the 1860s on kind of them and other communities got together to have their own medical schools and the A, what the precursor to the American Medical Association, again, used foundation and government power to block them out of funding streams and shut them down legally, again, to hold on to their own control. I'm very thankful for the medical community in so many ways. Right. But I think it's like, it's a history that we need to be aware of and to be especially thankful for those in the medical community who are fighting for reproductive rights now, because they're really going against the history of their profession. Right, um, right. And yeah. I wanted to read a few selective parts of the text of Conjuring the Sex Positive Witches, Sluts, and Feminists by Kristen Soleil in regards to reproductive rights and witchcraft. During the witch hunting era, the female figure most intimately acquainted with sex, birth, fertility was the midwife. Armed with the knowledge of herbology, biology, and in particular reproductive health, these predominantly poor peasant women were easy targets of accusation and sorcery. No one harms the Catholic faith more than do midwives, proclaims the Malleus Malficarum, in explanation for such vitriol summed up in the chapter that in various ways midwife sorceresses killed the fetuses in the womb and caused miscarriages. And when do they do not do this, they offer the newborns to demons. Because they dealt with the mysterious liminal space between birth and death, sickness and health, and specialized in the needs of women, midwives were viewed as suspect, not only by the church and the state, but also by the patients and their families. Before the scientific method was widely accepted, midwives relied 
on time-tested natural remedies, in addition to spells and charms, including painkillers, anti-inflammatories, and digestive aids, many of which remain in use today. Barbara Ehrenreich and Diedrich English explain in Witches, Midwives, and Nurses that when ailment treated by a midwife didn't heal, witchcraft could be to blame. And yet, if an ailment was healed, witchcraft too could be to blame. There was no problem in distinguishing God's cures from the devil's, for obviously the Lord would work through priests and doctors and not through the peasant women, they write. This was, after all, an era when the church held that pain and labor was the Lord's just punishment for Eve's original sin, said Aaron Reich, and English continue. Witchcraft was frequently associated with sex-related crimes. Midwife and women were discovered teaching birth control methods or providing abortifacents or abortions were also accused of witchcraft. Driven by fear, infanticide, and abortion, the 1556 French parliament ordered pregnant women to register their pregnancies and required a witness for their deliveries. If they do not do so and their baby died, they would be subject to the death penalty. And that is something that we could possibly see again here yeah, in the United States in the 21st century. That doesn't seem far off. I mean, they've proposed penalties just for people who experience miscarriage. Right. Right. Like, yeah, that's a really powerful text for sure. Yeah, I'll make sure to put this in the show notes. But I think this helps to solidify the link between witches and reproductive rights. Yeah. And that as witches, we are always have been the guardians of the knowledge of both birth and death through mm-hmm. herbal medicine, through spiritual connection to the body and the divine and we as witches it is the obligation of us that are defenders of the marginalized to stand up in face of this egregious erosion of our reproductive rights and and show up in every way that we can to combat this from happening because there's no way to prevent abortion There's only the ways to prevent safe abortion. Right, right. So if you are interested in helping out and getting involved, we'll make sure to put some links in the show notes for abortion clinics that you can volunteer for, as well as some links to different organizations that can help you keep involved. However you feel able to show up, to help the cause of reproductive rights, we invite you to also do. Thank you again for tuning in for this episode. We appreciate all of y'all out there listening. I think we're going to take a small little break in between when we do our next episode because Inku is going to Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. Yep. We're going, we're going to Ireland, a country which only very recently got legal abortion rights. Right. So when we get back, when you get back, we'll have, we have some episodes plans. I know I, some folks out there want to see us put out more content and we're trying. <laughs> we're also working full-time jobs, got a lot of other stuff going on. So we try to put out content as much as possible. If you want more from us, Patreon is a good way to check out the various different things that we're doing. I'm going to make sure to put out more 
episodes of Who's in Bloom because I'm always falling in love with flowers while Inku is away at Ireland. Mm. I think our next episode is going to be an interview with my spouse about Dungeons and Dragons and his journey to become a professional DM, as well as how Dungeons and Dragons has influenced his own spiritual practice. So very cool. Yeah, tune in for for that next time. And we other guests and topics, of course, delve into when hopefully we will get a little more time over the summer to put out episodes. And you can also rate and review us on the platform you listen to. Definitely. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can email us at questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram as Science Witch Podcast and on Twitter as Science Witch Pod. And we, of course, have our website, sciencewitchpodcast.com. And you can send us suggestions on topics that you would like to hear about at the intersection of magic and science. Yeah, we would love to hear that. We would love to hear from you. Well, until next time, live long and prosper. And blessed be. 